Welcome to Manage to Engage, the podcast from clearandopen.com, dedicated to the evolution of you because businesses grow when people do. Serving leaders, managers, and people who will be, helping you reach excellence in your work and achieve your personal goals at the same time. Sign up for the free course at clearandopen.com. If you really let yourself feel any emotion with absolute total presence, it will last maximum about two minutes. So if you're struggling and turning with something again and again and again, it means you haven't made room for it yet. That's fine. But just see that that's what's going on. You're not able to be with it all the way yet. Hi, it's Joseph. And thanks for tuning in to Manage to Engage, the podcast from clearandopen.com. Over the last two episodes, we've clarified the content of our reaction to COVID-19 and the context of that reaction. The content being our egoic emotional reaction and the context being the perpetual truth of not knowing. But getting to the point where you can hold both of these simultaneously is difficult. It often doesn't feel natural because it's not common in our society, but we are actually well-equipped to process these emotions and move beyond them. We just have to learn how to let it happen. So in this episode, you'll learn how to go about processing the fear, anxiety, grief, and other emotions that are being brought up by the pandemic. Get what you need from those emotions and then make room for that emotion within the greater context of yourself. I offer weekly member webcasts, online courses, and mentorship at clearandopen.com because it's my truth that with the right tools, anyone can solve the people, money, and time problems holding them back in business. I share part of these webcasts and courses on this show because I want to help you too. If you're enjoying the show and learning from it, I'd love your feedback. If you're listening to the show on an Apple device, all you have to do is open the podcast app, view the full description of this episode, and click the link to leave a rating and review for the show. Thanks so much for listening. Let's start the show. Well, and let me speak... um, let me, get, let me get a little controversial with you guys to, to maybe make a point. What's the worst? Here's one of the best things to do with fear. And this is, I'd say, a healthy kind of management with fear. What's the worst case scenario? What's the worst case scenario? Let's say we do nothing at all. I mean, which is already not the case. Things are being done. But if we were to do nothing, Let's say the mortality rate is 5%, which I believe is uh, you know, exaggerated. I think it's probably more like three, three and a half. But let's say it's five, 6%. And uh, 80% of those deaths, probably more like 90% of those deaths would be people who are over 70. And all those people die. That's like, what, 500 million people or so? How bad is that? We're all going to die. You know, it's like, it's hot. If you were over 70, you might think differently. <laughs> it's also probably all our parents. This is and my child's grandparent. It's hard. It's, here's what I want to get across that I, I don't know how to get this across. What would it be like if you didn't have a fear of death and you didn't have a fear of loss? Because the 
so hard to talk about. So I was hit by a car when I was almost three years old. And I don't know if I was born without a fear of death, but I don't have one. And I may have lost it in that car accident. And so what I want to tell you is life is so good without a fear of death. It's so much better because the root of most of the fear that people experience, even upstream of the need to control, is the fear of death. And the fear of death is so normal in our world that it's hard to imagine what life is without it. And I'm not unique. There are plenty of people who, for whatever reason, don't have a fear of death. And the I, I met one of them recently, a friend of mine who's a therapist. We were talking about our reactions to here in Hawaii when that uh, text went out about the missile threat. Remember that? And uh, I remember uh, that was, I think, one of the times where I really realized I, I really don't have it because people were freaking out. I just looked at it and was like, okay, well, is there anything I can do if there is a missile coming here? Is there anything I can do about that? I briefly had the idea of closing the windows, which I laughed at. It's <laughs> like, okay. thanks, mind. Well, <laughs> close the curtains, close the windows. <laughs> no, there's nothing I could do to prevent that. So I'll just go back to what I was doing. And that's what life is like without a fear of death. It's like, is life important? Sure. Does being want to be? Yeah. You know, should one do what they can to take care of themselves and other people? Yeah. But if there's a missile coming, only the fear of death causes you to freak out and try to drive to the airport and get on a plane. Only the fear of death causes you to, you know, panic. It's like, there's a way to be responsible and cautious and careful and all of those things without any fear at all. But the ego doesn't know that. So one of the things that we're all being held accountable for is how the fear of death, which is like, you know, the most natural and count honorable thing in the world, right? We're all going to die. What's the problem? I don't get it. So I don't feel death as much, I think, as I fear suffering. Mm-hmm. And, and grief. Yeah. Losing, okay. Yeah, saying goodbye to what we care about. Or not being able to. I mean, that's or not being able to say goodbye. Mm-hmm. And maybe you never say goodbye, which this is something, you know, this is like, something that I'm working on. Like, how do we continue to have our relationships when those that we love are no longer physically present? I mean, Joseph, that's one of the key things that I'm trying to figure out for myself right now. As my mother's death, I know is probably imminent anyway. So what I would say is work on that from the perspective of you and that other person are already the same thing. You see, because the, the, it, from separation, the ego dealing with the loss of someone or the need to say goodbye or anything related to that, in only the domain of separation, which is true, but that's only one third of reality. So if you try to sort that situation out with only one third of reality 
to bear, then it's not solvable. It's like trying to empty a fish tank without a siphon. It's just going to be this like, oh, well, how do I, if I just use my hands, maybe it's impossible. So the, the suffering comes when the ego tries to solve a problem that it can't solve. You know, when I, um, uh, before I moved to uh, Maui, as many of you know, I had all this loss. And it, um, I mean, I lost just about everything that was important to me. And one of the things I lost during that was my cat. I loved my cat. His name was Mook. It's this beautiful, long hair, black cat. And he died of that incurable feline virus, which was just like happened to happen during all of that. I lost everything that was important to me in the course of like less than 18 months. Most of it was in like the course of nine months. It was outrageous. It was like, it would have been unbelievable if I was a character in a movie. And it shredded my ego. Everything I identified with, everything I thought I was, was just being shredded and melted. And it took me a long time to realize how strong that made me that I survived it, barely. And I wanted to get cats here for a long time. And I was resistant because every time I thought about getting a cat, I would think about Mook and how painful it was to lose him. And so when I finally decided to get cats again, it was a big emotional deal for me because my ego was afraid of like, well, emotionally investing in a cat is like you're signing up for going through all that loss again because eventually they'll die. So what I do with that is I celebrate the deaths of my cats as often as I can remember. In my most precious moments where I'm really loving them, I think of that one day they'll be gone. Because that's true. That in one way they're already gone. Which is true for everything. All the time. In the samurai uh, had this. There's also, I know, uh, some of the Celtic medieval warriors. But in a lot of the warrior traditions, the um, beforehand, there would be rituals related to already being dead. In other words, like in, I know in, um, I think it was in Celtic or maybe Viking traditions, before the warriors would go to battle, they would take blood and draw a line across their throat as if their throat had been cut. And they would inhabit the reality that in one way they were already dead so that they could fight without the fear of death. So the paradox of the, the fear of death is, or fear of loss, or even grief, I would say is, what I would say is grief is real, but it lasts a lot longer to the degree you have attachment. It can, it can last years. It can last months or it can last moments. So when you process 
fears, attachments related to death or loss, it's like it widens the pipe so that the water of that grief can flow faster. It just moves through, which is true for any emotion. You know, um, same with fear. Again, it's not about not feeling it. It's about allowing that emotion so much, letting yourself feel it so completely. If you really let yourself feel any emotion with absolute total presence, it will last maximum about two minutes. So if you're struggling and turning with something again and again and again, it means you haven't made room for it yet. That's fine. That's fine. It's, it's a challenge. It has something to teach you. It, you know, that's, that's okay. But just see that that's what's going on. You're not able to be with it all the way yet. You're either pushing it away or becoming it too much. The soup takes a really long time to eat if you're on the other side of the room or your face is in it. It's really interesting to think of, of grief or emotions like that because I've heard that a very similar explanation for uh, that coaches give when talking about players and athleticism and when they deal with a loss. And they, what I typically hear, and I've heard it from multiple coaches that are elite level coaches, they say the players will hang on to it for 15, 20 minutes. Yeah. And once they're, in the lock, once they're out of the locker room, it's gone. They're not even thinking about it. Yeah. And the coaches will hang on to it to varying degrees. And the low-level coaches will hang on to it for like a day. Assistant coaches for like half a day. Head coaches are like an hour. You know, so they're almost like a player because they're in the moment. And the fans, he's like, fans don't let go of stuff for years because they're not doing the work. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I, I thought about that as like a grief analogy. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And of course the fans don't experience the accountability because if you get back on the field and play another game, still being a loser from the last game, you're going to find out really fast that that doesn't work. But the fans can do that. There's no accountability for that. It becomes part of their hobby lifestyle, going to the bar and complaining about their team or whatever like the Red Sox were when I was growing up like that. And, you know, they sucked for years and years and years. And being a, being the underdog became part of the culture for Bostonians who just like to complain about their team. Yeah, it can be difficult, but that's the thing to, to look at. If there's a persistent sense of difficulty around something, the question is what's going on there? Why, why is that? Either there's a turning away from it or there's a blending with it. And then, you know, you can do things like write letters to it. And that's basically what therapists do. Therapists help you process emotion that you're having difficulty, that's having difficulty moving through quickly. They help, you know, find, help find you a middle between having your face in the soup and turning away from the soup entirely. You find that middle ground. And when they do that, magically, it just processes. We naturally do that. The same way we naturally digest food, we naturally process air, we also naturally process emotion. It's all natural. Thanks for listening to Manage to Engage, the clear and open podcast. Join us next week when you'll be a little bit closer to who you're destined to be. Until then, 
Know that Clear and Open is dedicated to the evolution of you because businesses grow when people do. If you want to help the show grow, I'd appreciate you leaving a rating and review on iTunes. All you have to do is open the Apple Podcasts app, view the full description of the episode, and click the link to leave a rating and review. Or you can go to clearandopen.com slash review, and it will bring you to the right place. If you're looking for more support on your journey, head over to clearandopen.com for even more tools, articles, and free resources. Thanks so much for listening. Bye for now.